everyone and welcome back to Haunted History Chronicles. First of all, thank you for taking a listen to this episode. Before we begin, I just want to throw out a few ways you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon page as well as an Amazon link. So hopefully if you're interested in supporting, you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those can either be found in the show notes or over on the website. Of course, just continuing to help spread the word of the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with friends and family is also a huge help. So thank you for all that you do. And now, let's get started by introducing today's podcast or guest. In today's podcast, we delve into the unspoken corners of history to unearth the chilling tales that linger between the realms of the living and the dead, to unlock the cryptic files of the past and present, to explore unsettling encounters between the realms of justice and the supernatural. Our guest today, Dr. Richard Sugg, a renowned historian of the macabre, will guide us through a haunting procession of cases that blur the line between the earthly and the ethereal. As we traverse the pages of history, we'll uncover stories from the past to the present and discover where justice can sometimes take a supernatural form, and the living are not the only ones who seek retribution. Through a chilling method known as cruentation, an arcane practice rooted in the belief of divine intervention, we examine how this was used as a means to unearth the truth in cases of suspected murder and why the belief was that the essence of justice coursed through the veins of the deceased, their lifeblood holding the power to call out for retribution. In the early modern era, trials prioritised human testimony over forensic evidence, with exceptions reserved for divine testimony, believed to come directly from the Almighty. However, not all murder cases could be resolved through mere confessions. When jurors found themselves grappling with uncertainty about a defendant's guilt or innocence, a trial by ordeal was invoked. And within this eerie repertoire of justice, cruentation stood as a dark spectre. However, it's important to note that cruentation alone rarely sealed the fate of a suspect. More often, it was the psychological weight of the ordeal itself that caused the accused to break, confessing to their sins in the face of this eerie, supernatural trial. Cruentation, with its eerie blend of belief and mysticism, serves as a haunting reminder of the lengths to which societies have gone throughout history to dispense justice and uncover the truth, even if that meant invoking the otherworldly to deliver judgement. The pages of the past are filled with accounts of ghosts, or reference to ghosts and spirits in court cases. The Hammersmith ghost murder case of 1804 stands as a haunting testament to how prolific cases of ghosts in courtrooms were, and, in some ways, still are today. In the dark and eerie days of early 19th century London, the streets of Hammersmith echoed with tales of a ghostly apparition that terrorised its residents. From 1803 onwards, Reports of ghost sightings, and even violent attacks by this spectral entity, spread like wildfire. Locals believed it to be the restless spirit of a suicide victim, condemned to roam the earthly realm. Dressed in all white, 
sometimes adorned with a calfskin garment, horns and glass eyes. This apparition was both mysterious and menacing. The belief at the time was that suicide victims, denied consecrated ground, couldn't find rest in the afterlife. The terror reached its zenith when two women, one elderly and the other pregnant, claimed to have been seized by the ghost during separate encounters near the churchyard. Such was their fear that both women succumbed to shock and died within days. Thomas Groom, a brewer's servant, testified to an eerie encounter where the ghost lunged at him from behind a tombstone, gripping his throat in an icy grasp. As the panic escalated, a night watchman named William Girdler attempted to confront the apparition on December the 29th. In a desperate bid to escape, the ghost discarded its shroud, vanishing into the night. With no organised police force in London at the time, alarmed citizens formed armed patrols to apprehend the malevolent spectre. Then on that fateful night of January the 3rd, 1804, the spectre's chilling rain took a tragic turn. Francis Smith, a 29-year-old excise officer and member of the armed patrol, encountered a man on Beaver Lane, mistakenly believing him to be a ghost due to his white attire. Smith confronted him with a shotgun in hand. The man in question was no phantom, but a bricklayer named Thomas Millwood, innocently clad in the typical white clothing of his trade. Tragedy struck as Smith, amidst his confusion, shouted menacingly, Damn you! Who are you? And what are you? Damn you, I'll shoot you! He then fired, striking Millwood fatally in the lower jaw. The tragic death of an innocent man set in motion one of the most infamous legal cases in British history, with questions of justice and self-defence shrouding the events that unfolded. The Hammersmith Ghost Case of 1804, in all its eerie details, would reverberate through the pages of legal history for almost two centuries, until a Court of Appeal decision in 1984 finally laid the matter to rest. It remains a chilling reminder that even in the most perplexing of circumstances, the courts must grapple with the boundaries of belief and reality. Ghosts, whether they haunt the minds of individuals or the halls of justice, continue to intrigue and mystify revealing a spectral presence that refuses to fade away. If we journey to the heart of West Virginia, we unearth the eerie account of the Greenbrier ghost. This chilling tale proves that sometimes, even beyond the grave, the truth will not rest in peace. In 1897, the small town of Greenbrier County bore witness to a perplexing murder that left the community in shock. Elva, known as Zona, was found dead in her home, and the initial verdict was death by childbirth. However, it was the testimony of a grieving mother that would forever alter the course of justice. In the aftermath of her daughter's untimely demise, Mary Jane made a startling claim. She had encountered the apparition of Zona's spirit at her bedside. According to Mary Jane, Zona's ghost revealed the shocking truth. She had been murdered by her own husband, Erasmus Stribbling Trout Shoe, who had married her shortly before her death. This testimony became the linchpin 
of a sensational case that challenged the boundaries of belief and scepticism in the courtroom. Armed with this ghostly account, Mary Jane approached the local prosecutor, John Alfred Preston, and passionately pleaded for a reinvestigation into her daughter's death. While the veracity of the spectral encounter remained shrouded in mystery, it was enough to cast doubts in the minds of many, including the prosecutor himself. Fueled by public suspicion and growing scepticism about the initial verdict, an exhumation and autopsy were ordered, leading to a gruesome revelation. On February the 22nd, 1897, in a humble, one-room schoolhouse, Zona's remains were examined. The autopsy lasted three harrowing hours, unveiling a horrifying truth. Zona's neck had been broken, her windpipe crushed, and marks of strangulation were found on her throat. Erasmus Shu, her husband, was arrested and charged with her murder. The evidence from the autopsy contradicted the initial cause of death, and the ghostly testimony of Zona, delivered through her mother, had found an eerie echo in the halls of justice. The trial of Erasmus Shu began on June the 22nd, 1897, with Mary Jane as the prosecution's star witness. While the defence attempted to discredit her by questioning her reliability and her accounts of ghostly visits, Mary Jane stood firm in her testimony. The judge struggled to separate the spectral narrative from the case, and many in the community, captivated by the haunting tale, found it difficult to ignore. Ultimately, she was found guilty of murder on July the 11th, and was sentenced to life in prison. The Greenbrier ghost case remains a haunting reminder of how the supernatural can intertwine with the world of jurisprudence, challenging the boundaries of belief and reason. Erasmus Shu met an untimely demise himself, succumbing to an unknown epidemic while incarcerated in the West Virginia State Penitentiary, where he was buried in an unmarked grave. Get ready to examine tales that offer a glimpse into the shadowy world, where the past and present converge, and where the spirits of the departed refuse to fade away quietly. With Dr. Richard Sugg as our guide, we'll unravel the threads of history that bind the living to the spectral realm. As we explore the courts and ghosts of history, remember, the line between the living and the dead is thinner than you think. Now let's unlock the cryptic past and step into the world where justice meets the supernatural. Hi Richard, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thanks for uh, the invitation back again. It's a great subject which I've been rummaging through for several years now and uh yeah a lot of newspaper stories and quite a few personal stories actually it is a really really intriguing subject i think um there's some things about it that are really quite surprising and then you know snippets of things that maybe you've heard of that you just think well maybe there are a few examples of that but actually it's a subject matter that when you start researching ghosts and the law and cases where some aspect of the supernatural um, comes into play. There are just hundreds and hundreds of examples all over the world. The more you look, 
the more you find it seems to be this treasure trove of of stuff that you start uncovering yeah this is it it's it's surprising how many cases of violent poltergeists where things are flying around inside a house people's first response under extreme stress unpredictability threat usually not actually the danger of uh, injury as is is oddly the case with all this psychokinesis um, objects if they ever hit anyone don't harm them in the way that they should if someone had thrown it but then the other one that you can see the point more strongly is from time immemorial probably a particular lot in the uh, victorian press in the 19th century showers of stones from absolutely nowhere um, being hurled at properties. Uh, they might be suburban, terraced. They might be detached right out in the wilderness uh, and so forth. And understandably, people are calling the police here in a quite logical way. People who don't remotely believe in ghosts because they think, you know, the property is in danger. They might be in danger and somebody is persecuting them. And over and over again, with huge police presence, uh, day and night sometimes. And in one case, for actually years uh, in Birmingham, just uh, a few decades ago, you, you've got the police completely baffled. They, they simply uh cannot cannot catch anybody as i say it's just such a fascinating topic to look through from a contemporary position but also a historical position to see this this evolution um how things have changed but also to see what still is present what we still see happening um right up to today which i think might surprise people but yeah i think a, a kind of a a place to start maybe because I think at the heart of a lot of what you see in older examples of cases where a report of the ghost comes through either through testimony or through um, some kind of evidence given in a court of law or if you have some other kind of supernatural element that is brought into the proceedings itself at the heart of that I think is is something very relevant for a long period of time which is this blurring of lines of of where life and death begins and ends you know begins and starts with this feeling that death is gradual that the soul can remain behind either through attaching to the body or through their blood where that you know that vitality somehow remains what you have is this sense of well something spiritual coming through is there to try and and make things right, to um, get things back on the right course, to have their justice, to have that moment where things are righted in some way. And you see that playing out in so many different types of, like I've said, these different aspects of the supernatural coming through in, in court proceedings. Do you want to just explain that a little bit more, what, what that kind of belief was around the soul and life and death and and how death didn't necessarily it wasn't the moment that you stopped breathing. Yeah, this is a surprisingly universal belief uh, from the Bible to uh, almost certainly the present day in, in certain parts of the world uh, that you don't just die like on off switch, um, you know, in the sense that medicine tries to to assert um, that 
the soul is likely to hover around the body sometimes in some belief that the uh, the soul is not quite sure that the body is really dead and of course when you think about comas and so forth you can see the logic of this um and there's this three four day window over and over again from the time of christ to the time of vampire panics in europe in uh, the 19th early 20th centuries that yeah the uh, the soul hovers around the body and in vampire country this is particularly why the body is in danger of vampirization you encourage the soul to leave the house or you discourage the soul from getting back into the house uh, sometimes after the burial and yeah the the period goes in stages a kind of sort of smoldering out of life like a dying coal from three days uh and then 40 days and then up to a year and the greeks are quite interesting with this because they would exhume bones of the dead on a routine basis uh, to be sure that the body was decomposing and of course you get what are really well-attested scientific accidents uh adipocheri and various conditions where the body doesn't decay and sometimes for a surprisingly long time and this caused horror in uh the Greeks in vampire country for the belief that the person was kind of trapped in the body and you know, it was trapped in this life and couldn't pass on. And yeah, choose your country, choose your folklore, choose your time to a large extent. You get this sense of that being normal, really. You know, it's 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 normal that there's this blurred space between life and death, uh, particularly for up to uh, three days and the extremity of it in Greece into the 19 oh, early 20s probably um, you know about 100 years ago and people were remembering this in Greece in about the 1960s or 70s on a Greek island not far from Athens that you must watch the corpse of the dead person all the time absolutely every minute until it was buried because they were in danger of vampirization if the corpse was left alone it must never be left alone the irony of this was that you also must never pass anything over a corpse and you've got a large gathering of very sleepy people uh with their children and so forth in a circle around this corpse and before you know it at three in the morning somebody has passed over the body uh, a cup of coffee a cigarette a child and absolute horror electrifies the room and in complete defiance of everything the church will tell these people extremely pious christians the soul has the body has been vampirized irrevocably absolutely there's nothing you can do about it except to destroy the soul so in a kind of strange mixture of practical magic and absolute heresy they might pour oil and vinegar i think it's boiling through a hole in the the coffin uh, with the body having now been buried as quickly as possible or coffined anyway and see, yeah they would they would then destroy the soul i think there's actually a word um for for this in greek uh, a verb for the destruction of the soul and after this you know there's no memorials for it no candles are lit uh, and it's 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 gone you know it's not in heaven hell purgatory anywhere and this is one of the biggest heresies i can think of like i said i think it comes through so strongly when you start unpicking this aspect of of, of research of of belief system because i came across such a fascinating case and i'm sure you've heard of it involving the murder of a young man called william Eden in the summer of 1829 in buckingham his two murderers were on trial and his wife is basically there giving evidence. 
And there are kind of some really startling things that come up because of the evidence that she's giving. One is the fact that she talks quite openly as part of her testimony that, you know, she had visitations from her husband at the point of death. That's, first of all, something that is there in her, you know, in the transcript, in records reported at the time in newspaper articles and so on, who are covering this case. The fact that she's openly talking about and submitting as evidence her husband coming to see her to tell her what happened to him and how he died. But the response to that is also the remarkable bit, because in this court of law, Mm. where this is a a case of murder, two men up for this very serious charge. I mean, her husband was very brutally attacked. He had his his throat slashed. His chest um, was brutally butchered. And the response from the court, from the judge, from the prosecution, from the defence, from everybody listening, is not to, to somehow see that as well, here is this witness, totally discredited, because how can we believe anything she says now? She's talking ghosts. Yes. It is a matter of fact. It is taken as a matter of fact that this existence, this moment, her experience happened. So therefore, they're not denying the existence of ghosts. They are accepting the existence of ghosts. That's the second really, truly remarkable thing. And then the third is, her testimony is that she... She carried out this test with with one of those thought to be responsible for the murder, someone called Benjamin Tyler. She she basically tested his innocence or guilt by bringing him to see her husband laid out, deceased. Yes. To see if as he approached her husband's body, if her husband would start spontaneously bleeding. Yeah. Because the belief being that if they started bleeding near someone that is proving their their guilt because the blood is that kind of representation of that person's soul their spirit saying you know pointing to the guilty party yes and all three of those things come through in her testimony alone yes. and they are taken as fact which is fascinating it, it, it is. I mean, I think it was more formally recognised as law in the early modern period where I first came across that. And there were quite a few stories about uh, the corpse bleeding in the presence of a murderer. And murderers took this seriously and would keep away from the corpse uh, or were reluctant to be summoned to it, you know, uh, to have their guilt proved by this. But as with so many things, you know, it keeps going longer than you'd think into context where you're you're pretty startled that this is still this is still happening. I mean I honestly don't know what to make of the the mechanics of it. Stranger things do happen, you know, on behalf of the dead, of course. Uh and and they might be less wronged than that. They might have just been buried in the wrong place or in the wrong fashion. But um it does remind me that uh, again, you seem to be at the mercy of particular judges, juries, uh, lawyers in these cases. Because one of the cases I was pretty startled by uh, when rounding them up for a century of ghost stories was amazing one in which a chap called Dunn, uh, D-U-N-N, turns up in 1826 at at the local uh, magistrate's court, I think it is, and he's very agitated and he wants to explain what's happened to him uh, last night in his lodgings in Tooley Street, where 
somebody somebody has come to uh, his room and you get this extraordinary kind of slippage between worlds because the ghost uh, which he sees as a tall grave looking figure dressed in black uh, is, is visibly there and also speaks and first off the ghost simply says Weatherell clean my boots and prepare my supper and the uh, character Dunn doesn't really know what to say and then sees the ghost vanish through the wall and goes through the wall uh, and has gone. Uh, he he waits and presently uh, it, it comes back again. Uh, and now we've got a completely different scenario uh, where the dead man is telling him, I am the body of a murdered man and I was murdered near here and you can seek for my body and find it. And he clearly wants justice. Uh, and yet you've got that weird kind of sense that at one point he's in his normal, I don't know that I'm dead, I'm that kind of ghost and I'm just giving my instructions to my valet as I would in life. And in the next, he's kind of jolted somehow that, hang on, you know, this is a living person and I can get my story across. And yeah, he gets, poor old Dunn gets short shrift in this case. And uh, I just kind of impatient to have him, have him out of the court. So I think it doesn't go anywhere, but yeah, over and over again, um, ghosts do make their way into court, into the lives of police, into the lives of lawyers, judges. And of course, the fact being, I think, that when you realise how common ghosts and poltergeist occurrences actually are, the odds are that, yeah, solicitors, barristers, judges, police are going to be victims of them, as in, in fact, in the case of a police station. I haven't managed to trace it recently, uh, but eight years up to 1978, a lady in black, so kind of obeying some decent ghost film uh, etiquette, haunts a police station in Paynton, Devon. Um, fairly new building i think erected on the site of a house where a woman said to commit suicide and rooms are mysteriously ransacked papers are hurled across corridors lights are switched on and off and uh, we have a police investigator leslie skinner saying several police officers claim to have seen the ghost and to have been shaken by it so it's you know it's visible it's active uh, and it's it's up to tricks for eight years yeah i mean i have to say it's something that I, I kind of feel like I'm going to have to talk to um, my brother and his partner who are both in the police now because I kind of want to know what they would do if they were presented with something like this. Um, because I, I it, like you said, it, it's the more you look, the more you find that this is something very much that sits within this sphere. And yet we don't seem to, to talk about how it impacts on law, on what the police do, how they handle it, how it's recorded, all of this stuff. It's just kind of happening but nobody's really aware of it and like I said it's so fascinating when we think about what we were talking about here you've got really interesting parts of history that again I don't think are particularly well known and spoken of but really does speak to belief systems around the dead and spirits coming back because you know this whole per this whole point of of cruentation which is that touching of a corpse to see if they bleed mm is on the premises, premise of, well, it's almost the blood calling out for justice, that the soul, the spirit of that person is remaining in the blood. And it's almost like a process of divination, whereby as that person gets closer to them, it's going to be attracted to the person who's killed them or done something to them. 
because it's crying out for justice. It's their kind of their moment to set things right again. And again, you see that that kind of echoing through in other examples, whether it's a death premonition, whether it's the sighting of a, a you know a, a husband, a spouse um, coming through, a child where they're coming through to tell what has happened to them. You have this kind of coming through time and time again of somehow this this spirit wanting to be heard in death. And it's so fascinating when you start uncovering these stories because they are literally everywhere. And, and like you mentioned, they go really, really late. I mean, in terms of cruentation, this, this belief that if you touch the corpse or if you get close to it, it's going to bleed if you've done wrong, that went on until 1869 in America. 1869. Yeah, so I guess if it was going to be anywhere that late, it would, it would, as far as the developed world goes, it would be America. Um, for that, that is that is still quite surprising. Yeah, which is just an absolute marvel to think that you've got, and and, and again, I've come across, I, I can't tell you how many cases of someone being picked up, literally being taken straight round to the coroner's inquest where they are then forced to to touch the corpse or get close to the corpse so that those who are there that day, the magistrate, the judge, whoever else is in the, there present, can see what happens to the corpse. And that's that's enough evidence then to to say, yep, enough here to say we think we can we can prosecute. Um that there's there's evidence here of murder, which is Fascinating. Yeah, I must. I really must. I'm making a note here. I must ask Michael Bell, who's a veteran. He's now 80, uh, American folklorist, and he's uh, he's written a couple of books now on American vampire beliefs. So that will be something he will probably have come across, and we can see if we can get it a bit later. Still, I I wouldn't be surprised. But uh, yeah, in terms of recent uh, testimony from the other side, and they never quite got to the bottom of who it was trying to get through. Uh, but there there was a possible a possible suspect for it um, identified by a medium. Things have changed dramatically in just the last. I'm trying to think of the date now, I think about 10, 11 years uh, since Caroline Mitchell had the courage to publish an epic poltergeist account, uh, Paranormal Intruder. And September 2010, you had a visitor to her house uh, watching liquid appearing. Anyone who knows poltergeist be fairly familiar with this kind of trick. Liquid was appearing from midair, just below a ceiling. You'd thinking common sense terms where well, it's coming through the ceiling uh they checked the ceiling it was dry they checked the floor above and that was dry also uh this witness signed a statement to say that he had seen this uh and he was paul brassi a police officer uh and colleague of the householder caroline mitchell and i'd be interested to know what you find from you know your inquiries because mitchell endured this with her family and young children and her partner neil for years actually years and he, she almost cracked up she was a veteran police officer and this was the most terrifying and the most stressful thing she'd ever dealt with they were forced out of the house very very quickly um, particularly because they got young children and were constantly staying in quite cramped conditions with um 
I think it was Neil's or Caroline's parents, but but fleeing to them because they simply couldn't live there. And it went on for years. Um, it actually centred on uh, Neil. So far from a typical kind of poltergeist agent, but it was very much persecuting him. It followed him out of the house and showers, talk about showers of stones, you know, showers of stones kind of falling on him as he ran down the drive into his car to escape. And then as he sat there in the car, they fell through the car on top of him in the car. Uh, it followed them to the pub, you know, they got tables jerked about, glasses thrown about uh, in I think more than one pub locally. And yeah, absolutely appalling ordeal uh, in which they had, I think, two or three police witnesses. They give their accounts at the end of the book. And yeah, Mitchell got tremendously useless help from the local Catholic church, uh, was uh, actually cracking moment, would make a lovely TV drama moment one day. Um, they finally managed to get the attention of a local father and this character was telling Neil that she and Caroline must live, quote, as brother and sister until they were actually married, because they weren't. Um, so having given this helpful advice, he suddenly gets the poltergeist in his church office, hammering bang, bang, bang on the walls and jumps out of his chair as though for the first time ever, this character who makes his living out of it believes in ghosts. This is where I think it's so fascinating because I think we can look at historical examples and think, oh gosh, what a load of superstition, magic, that they believe all of these things. I mean, how how incredulous is it to think that you can touch a corpse and it's going to tell you if someone's a murderer or not? Or are they really going to believe a witness who has a visitation from someone they love and they're using that as testimony? We can kind of think that that's really quite absurd. But the fact is, the existence of ghosts is there in the law. We have, it's called yes. common law of ghosts. So you have common law roads, common law housing, all of these things. Hmm. So you have that in law. So they're not denying the existence of ghosts. Sure. They are simply expecting that the case presents some credible witness to either highlight that this is an example of a haunting or disprove that there's nothing happening in this instance. Within that scope, they're not denying that ghosts don't exist. So in other words, there is nothing written anywhere in law saying, ghosts is a preposterous thing, there's no scientific evidence that it's that it's real, therefore, we're not going to ever discuss it in a court of law. The fact is it's there, the existence of it is undeniable. It's the position of those taking part to, to be credible enough to prove their case for or against. And that's the really interesting bit. Because when you know that, and then you start looking at contemporary sources, you get all manner of different examples, whether it's people upset that their house is haunted by a poltergeist that they've just taken over and they're trying to do something about it because they think the previous owner should have informed them of that. Yeah, um, yeah. You've got huge amounts of records around um, property disputes when it yeah. comes to haunted locations. Yeah. Whether they think that they should have been told something or not, or whether they, they as the person trying to sell a property, have the right to not say anything because it might impact on them being able to sell their house. I mean, you've got so many different examples. It, it's it's, uh, it's in modern courts. Extraordinary kind of, kind of maze and minefield, really, because mm. one example that's become famous or notorious in the last few uh, years, and 
came into the press in 1999 is Lowe's Cottage in Derbyshire, uh, which was occupied by Josie and Andrew Smith and fairly young children. And they found the place to be severely haunted as a classic bit of uh, psychokinesis where Andrew is um, at his desk and he sees his typewriter starting to vibrate. Now, this is not the kind of thing you see in horror films, but it's it's well known if you've studied enough poltergeist that you can on occasions and Matthew Manning saw it, it's happened in Scotland. You'll see the objects that are going to suddenly go flying with tremendous violence. This is an old fashioned typewriter. They'll vibrate as though something's building up, you know, a force is building up within them. And it takes a little while before it gets strong enough that then whoosh, your ornament, your glass, your chair, uh, your your typewriter in this case goes hurtling across the room. Um, there's there's pretty active uh, ghosts involved here. I mean, people get kind of groped. Um, the the walls sweat moisture. A medium gets involved and um, has more success really than the the local minister who comes by and does his best, but doesn't really solve the problem. But the, the medium finds that there's been, I think, um, a suicide and or a murder on the on the property, which dates back to the 18th century. Anyway, the thing goes to court because you know point you've made here the the vendor of a house does have a, a duty to inform uh any prospective buyers about anything which might you know affect the property obviously it'd be things like subsidence or uh you know historic problems with the structure and yeah i mean i know of a a, a pretty thoroughly a, a haunted house i mean not not kind of violently active unlivable i don't think but a haunted house uh in england where yeah, the, the owners don't really want uh, the story to get out too much. It's a very valuable house. It's probably worth well over a million pounds at ordinary valuation now. Anyway, the uh, case with the Smiths and the vendors, it's two sisters in their late 30s, early 40s, uh, goes to court and they run into uh, about the most unsympathetic uh, judge you could uh, hope for in this case. I mean, bear in mind you have the vicar um, testifying in court. And I think if this had been a Victorian case, actually, the evidence of the Reverend Peter Mockford, uh, vicar of Blurton in Staffordshire, would have had a lot more weight, uh, whereas he's derided not quite as badly as the smiths but the smiths are described by uh, judge stratton as devious and un uh, stratton sorry devious and unreliable uh, and one of the pieces of evidence against them is the fact that they've read the amityville horror uh, which basically boils down to people living in a haunted house have started reading up on ghosts and yeah they're 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 thrown out of court they're um slandered arguably you could say and uh made a bit of a laughing stock in the press and the guardian uh traditionally in recent decades one of the worst papers for taking anything paranormal seriously it's just not ironic and cool enough uh has a jolly good laugh at their expense uh, as does the judge uh and cut to um 2019 2020 but Pretty recently, they talked to the buyer of the house, who in fact gets it at uh, a bit of a knockdown price, I think maybe 50,000 cheaper than it should have sold for. Uh, 
Uh, this character uh, seems a very rational, hard-headed guy. He's living there with his dog, and after he's been living there about 20 years, he gets in touch with the Guardian and says, yeah, I'm living in a haunted house. He's clearly not as haunted as it was with the Smiths, uh, but he describes odd changes in temperature, the dog being pretty spooked, which is a classic uh, index. He describes the walls sweating moisture, and, you know, he's he's a reliable character. He's been there for two decades, and having waited that long, he comes forward and says, yeah, this is a haunted house. This isn't going to affect the, the judgment retrospectively, but I think what's fascinating about this is you do wonder if the sisters uh, actually did sell the house in completely good faith because they just weren't the type of people to attract ghosts. The fact was that the the Smiths got the biggest whacking of this haunting and they had young children. The character Tim Chilton in there afterwards was on his own. He was, uh, I think, he was middle-aged, just him and his dog. Um, so, yeah, it certainly makes sense when you look at the instability of paranormal problems in houses. You've got the case of Denton Hall in the 19th century and the 20th century is thoroughly haunted as far as lots of visitors are concerned in the 19th century. It's got a big stately home near Newcastle. Uh, it's full of socialites, theatre people, uh, glamorous well-heeled types coming to stay from London and then coming down to breakfast in the morning saying we're leaving straight away. I'm not going to tell you anything that happened. I'm never staying here again. And cut to the early 20th century i think it is a couple of elderly ladies live there very happily and comfortably with their silky uh, which is a kind of brownie or benevolent fairy that sweeps things up for them drops some little bunches of flowers as presents on the stairs i think makes the fire for them possibly but anyway they don't have any problem with uh, this character and when they move on or die i'm not sure which the family around the second world war is uh, a wealthy family with a fairly young boy and particularly in the boys room there's a violent hammering and the family simply can't stay there a lovely big grand house historic place and they simply have to move out so when i say a minefield you know you've not just got to believe in ghosts you've got to understand how a ghost like kind of litmus paper reacts or haunted house reacts to new tenants and and they are they are touchy a lot of the time the case that you just um, you were just sharing, I think, is a really interesting one, and it reminded me of another one from Ireland, almost very similar in the sense that you had. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the house, the house on the marsh. Yes, um, I've been looking at this again today, actually. Yeah, yes. I yeah. mean, just this really yeah. interesting example of almost a similar example whereby you've got the owners who don't have children, and she's renting her property out to a married couple who have children and it's the family moving in who then yeah. suddenly experience from day one quite severe disturbances i mean mrs kinney who who was the the wife who moved in had things physically being thrown at her while she's in bed asleep mm. and this was this was documented by so many other people coming to the house who knew the house who lived near the house who would hear all of this hear this noise in yes. the middle of the night and she the family basically said we're not we're not paying our rent because you didn't tell us that we would be living and i quote you what you didn't tell us we would be living with a supernatural tenant <laughs> which yeah. is a fascinating way of describing it and it went to court because they obviously yes. they weren't they didn't want to pay their their rent 
the person who owned it wanted to claim that money. She thought she was entitled to it. In her mind, she'd had no experience or knowledge of this this ghost um, or what they were experiencing. And it went before an, an Irish judge. She had to prove, they, basically you had one side that has to prove that it's it's real and the other side that proves that it's not real. And in the end, she didn't get her money, did she? <laughs> Which is no, fascinating. Kid, judge Kisby was, uh, I'm sure he was a good good Catholic or a good Protestant, but he wasn't taking ghosts seriously. And um, yeah, um, that does not matter was the bit that I got quoted particularly in the, the report. And certainly the aftermath, if you look at the papers after the judgment in uh, England and elsewhere, I was going to say the English reporting of it is fascinating to then see the the judgment of what judges here in England had to say on the matter. It's it is fascinating to see that difference, um, yeah, play out. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got thought. that situation, you know, so common in um, Britain, particularly where a very few people hold far too much power. You know, go back four hundred years, and your problem was not convincing people about the existence of ghosts. It was convincing that you weren't a witch, and the law thoroughly encouraged people to uh, imagine, report these cases, persecute anybody they didn't like, assault them, uh, lynch them, scratch them, you name it. And in fact, I mean, one of the things that occurred to me today when I was thinking about this again was that. In fact, the law probably, I mean, there were a lot of other factors in play because people were deeply superstitious, but the law probably actually created paranormal phenomena. And I'll give you the example which I was thinking of here. You may know, and people may know, and God help you if you sat through a performance of it, the play, The Witch of Edmonton, which is a, a strange work um, drummed up very fast by a few playwrights in the 1620s on the basis of an actual case uh, in which poor old lady who's yeah rather persecuted and alienated from uh, the rest of her community is labeled a witch has an argument with one of her neighbors about something absurdly trivial like some soap that a pig's eaten um and um you know says something that's construed as a curse basically after the act in in the heat of the moment and the the woman who uh is agnes agnes ratcliffe the woman who conceives that she's been cursed goes to her bed is witnessed by her husband foaming at the mouth in a state of absolute terror and dies in around i think it's about three days they dress this up and mess around with it in the uh play for dramatic effect but that's what actually happens in the pamphlets that you've got on the the case it's pretty famous at the time and this is obviously a case of voodoo death it, it happens all over the world time and time again terror of vampires terror of ghosts terror of dark magic of one sort or another and yeah the symptoms are over and over again exactly the same people die in around three to four days they're terminally hopeless they won't eat they won't drink they quite often foam at the mouth have kind of fit and yeah this was going on uh, just after the time of shakespeare in england um in the time of james the first who's of course absolutely notorious for kicking off witch persecutions in scotland and then bringing them to england so 
I would say that although there's a lot of factors in play here, if the highest in the land from the great universities and all the rest of it are encouraging uh, belief in ghosts, then it's probably going to encourage the level of terror and you can't rule out them having some role in this woman being terrified to, to death. I think you hit on something really, really important there, which is that, you know, even though this is something obviously written into law, that's not denying the existence of ghosts. There is an element of who is there sitting over that judgment? Who is there watching the whole thing unfurl as to as to how they steer it and where it goes? I mean, an example being the um, the Hammersmith ghost murder yeah. case, yeah. which is a fascinating, fascinating account because yeah. here you've got something really very much changing legal precedent in mm. terms of a defence being able to put forward, well, Here's a community that's been terrorised by potential ghost sightings and ghost attacks. Mm. Here's someone who has gone out and shot and killed somebody. Yeah. Dressed in their work uniform. So he was a bricklayer, wasn't he? But And the bricklayer uniform was, was white. Wearing white, yeah, yeah. And he was shot, he was murdered. And the defence was he genuinely thought he was shooting a ghost. He was defending himself against a ghost attack. And this is before you have really formalised policing. So it was very much up to the individuals. Yeah. But the defence was precisely that. And it was, you know, it was it was there in law that this could be used as a de- as a defence. You know, mistaken identity, thinking that something could be a ghost. And the jury were the ones who came back with initially saying, well, we believe him. He genuinely did, did believe mm. that he saw a ghost. Yeah. This is a case of manslaughter. Yeah. And the judge yeah. then stepped in to to kind of move them towards the judgment of finding him guilty of murder. And then he was subsequently obviously found guilty um, and sentenced for murder instead of, of manslaughter, which is where the jury were going with it. Yes, yes. And, it, you know, there's a, there's a really good example of how one person can influence the direction of the verdict based on what's happening in, in their courtroom, um, based on what they believe. Yeah. Ab- abso- not necessarily the law. Ab- absolutely, yeah. This was, this was, I think, among other things, you know, a very, very powerful example of how general and how intense terror of ghosts could be uh, among, rather more among ordinary people, I think, than the educated. Um, but, yeah, um, this was... This was a big, big uh, precedent, and that kind of level of terror was something that coroners, um, courts were familiar with right through the uh, 19th century, because you have a case right in the middle of Victorian London, 1860s, I think it is, around Regent's Park, where a young girl um, goes into employment in her teens, I think, in um, this grand house. And she's only been there a few hours, I think, or certainly just you know, a day or so, when one of her fellow servants for a jape, uh, sort of pick on the new girl, perhaps, darts out at her boo. I don't know if she's even covered in a white sheet or anything, but darts out at her boo uh, from an alcove or a doorway on a darkened staircase. And the, the the girl, the victim, goes into that terminal shutdown that you see with voodoo death, and she dies. She simply dies in bed. I can't remember if she goes back to her father's house or not, 
but she never recovers. She never gets out of bed and she dies. So it goes to court. And imagine, you know, the poor girl who's played the prank is absolutely distraught. But this was not the only case where this occurred. You know, there were court cases where someone plays a pretty crude hoax. I don't know if it's even dark. They, they jump out over a fence in a country lane with a white sheet on them as a ghost. And yeah, the victim dies of terror. There, there was a case um, of somebody on the Isle of Man. This was actually when I was researching disgust and the kind of reactions to lunacy in the Victorian period, which was a tragic thing for so many people. And this, this character was shut up in an outhouse by his family on the Isle of Man, um, a character called Dick Waterson, uh, in I think around the 1850s or 60s. I mean, he was almost sort of bricked in. It was just a hole for him to take food through. And the conditions in there were, were unimaginable as, as witnesses attested. And the, the argument was he'd been terrified into madness by a ghost prank. And, you know, if you just read that cold, you think, well, absolute rubbish. But when you've read the cases where they've been terrified to death by a ghost prank, then you think, yeah, it, uh, it, it makes sense. So, yeah, the law had, had good reason to, to have to deal with this time and time again. Absolutely. And, I mean, it's still a case that, you know, the Hammersmith ghost murder case is still something, I think, that gets talked about and disputed today in terms of how it played out and the precedent that it set because as you mentioned here you, you've got a community totally and utterly being terrorized and this is this was the response that they they formalized as a result of that yeah you know, I mean, like, and, and completely changed the, the criminal defense routes that you could take afterwards it is one of those cases where you can imagine a modern judge, you know, saying this was manslaughter committed under the uh, influence of extreme stress or something, something like Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, yeah. um, it, it could have been completely different causes or triggers, but the the kind of moment of panic where they lose all ordinary kind of control is is the same. Um, I don't know if this has happened much in America, where you know, whipping out a gun is a bit like whipping out a comb uh, unfortunately but uh, i imagine it must have done as well you only have to look at again articles and things from that time that the terror that people had and to put it into context you know you've got parts of london terrorized by serial murders jack the ripper etc and here you've got a community where pregnant women are being frightened on their way home um you know people being attacked and experiencing this level of terror just out in the streets, ordinary things, them getting on with their lives. And yeah, it was it was it went on for such a long time, didn't it? And yeah, just a fascinating response that when someone was frightened to death to the point where they 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 were arming themselves and going on the streets to patrol for this particular phenomena. Yeah, I think um, they, well, they took matters in their own hands. The nineteenth century is is fascinating because you've got such a, a polarization of attitudes. You know, you've got people who are never going to believe in ghosts even if one sets up camp in their house and you've got people who will die of terror and in between you've got all these people exploiting that and they you know there were a lot of pranks there were a lot of, of, of very silly pranks um there was a, a a character who was quite a respectable old soldier a tired soldier or something was going about with a mask and horns and the the foolish old jack and apes was jumping out on timid women you know after dark and things uh he was had up in court you've got the whole thing with spring-heeled jack which i you know i can't remember all the endless stories about it now but i i think this was probably a hoax uh and yet the the, the consequences could 
could time and again be fatal and it, it, it eerily reminds you of the degree of terror of vampires in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. You're talking about hardened soldiers here, people who dauntless against the Turks, um, but yeah, will will die of terror of what they believe to be a vampire, which funnily enough, a lot of the time probably is actually a ghost or a, or a poltergeist. But don't you think in some ways this is very much evidence of just how how very much popular opinion was that most people believed in, in ghosts or the supernatural to some extent that these things could happen and thereby the fact that they were coming through court systems isn't so surprising and, and certainly the volume of which they were coming through mm. during the last few hundred years yeah it's not surprising no i mean it's it's a very good point i mean the sheer volume of witnesses in some cases um i think if you were a lawyer taking this kind of thing seriously or a police officer taking this kind of thing seriously you would mainly look for a poltergeist that hammers the hell out of a house you know it's one that is banging crashing smashing uh, after dark for several hours perhaps sometimes you'll get huge running footsteps uh, you might get screams as well but there was a building next to the white heart pub in poplar uh, in london in the 19th century where there were hundreds of people uh, out in the streets because people you know, they genuinely were superstitious i mean you could just have a sort of branch swinging in front of a lamp at times and this would trigger crowds of hundreds that the police had to deal with but in this case what you're you're listening to in the reports really sounds like a poltergeist you know it sounds like a classic hammering poltergeist and the noise is so colossal that you can't believe it isn't damaging the building um and yeah the the lady here um is complaining to local authorities because you've got such vast numbers of people you've got actually hundreds of witnesses if you start to take this seriously you've got hundreds of people now if this had been an apparition that's kind of fairly shy you know and appears for a few minutes uh, every night or something the odds of hundreds of people seeing it are very slight but if you've got a noise that as we know from other reports can be heard at least 500 yards away then you've got hundreds of witnesses just by them standing around in the street and because you've got a vast kind of you know unruly crowd public order problem you've got tons of police as well so you've got two levels of witnesses at least and yeah that that case was was epic kind of you know free horror film entertainment in the in the early 19th century just you know one of many to celebrate heading into the spookier season autumn nights howling wind and freezing rain halloween spookiness in the dark depths of winter haunted history chronicles will be posting daily podcasts on patreon on all tiers over there as well as the usual additional items offered Signing up now will gain you access to these, as well as all previous archived content. For as little as £1, you could be getting hundreds of podcasts to enjoy, writing, source material and more, and know that you are contributing and helping the podcast to continue to put out more content. You can find the link in the episode description notes, as well as on the Haunted History Chronicles website or social media. So why not come along to enjoy a rich web of accounts perfect for this season. Dark tales of corpses, ghosts, folklore, 
Christmas and Halloween macabre traditions and connections, and a whole lot more. A very special thank you to Renee who came and joined us over on Patreon this week. Here's to celebrating lots more interesting and spooky conversations that we get to have. Thank you so much for your support. And now, let's head back to the podcast. I came across a fascinating account from America. I think it was some somewhere around 1905, yeah. where I think her name was Mrs. Neggy or Mrs. Naggy, something like that. I can't yeah. quite remember the exact spelling and pronunciation. Basically, a, a local newspaper had written an article where they'd mentioned her house being a haunted house. And um, she took offence to that right. and decided she was going to sue the newspaper uh, because this was untrue. Her house was not haunted. And so you have a court case where one side is trying to prove that her house is haunted and she is trying to prove that her house is not haunted. Yeah. And, you know, again, given that the, the, the premise of the law is that we're not trying to deny the existence of ghosts, you just have to prove it one way or the other. Mm. Uh, she lost. She lost completely because there wasn't enough evidence. She failed to prove her burden because this, you know, the, the other side, the newspaper had people who could come forward with stories, their mm. own sightings, apparitions, sounds, experiences from before she'd moved in, things they'd heard on the street. Yeah. Hence why they put it into the newspaper. Yeah. And so she lost. That's a really interesting one because there's so many cases where, I mean, you, you'll know like myself, you know, what Keith Linders endured from simply moving into the wrong house. Uh, sim simply, you know, as a 42-year-old man with his girlfriend of about the same age, moving into the wrong house, having had no paranormal experiences in his life until then. And now being a kind of encyclopedia of paranormal, paranormal possibilities. I was almost going to use the word craziness, but it sounds crazy. I don't want to imply that he's crazy. But, you know, it, it doesn't stop to this day. It's happened in hotels all across America, um, his workplace, on planes, in clubs, in bars. Uh, the witness level there is extraordinary. And he was clearly aware fairly quickly that the landlord was pretty cool about a lot of damage to the property in a way that he probably wouldn't have been if he hadn't known that this had happened over and over again. It had a lot of tenants for a, a pretty new house in a short period of time. And of course, over here in England, we've got, uh, I was mentioning it to you, I think the other day, the cage in Essex. I mean, this is one where if ever a house simply should not be a house, you know, it should be a site for paranormal investigation and not much else. That is the cage. Um, this building built on the site of a, a prison that used to house alleged witches. I mean, absolutely unlivable. And the owner, Vanessa Mitchell, with her young baby, uh, tries to live there amongst a lot of other stuff happening, sees somebody standing over her child's cot and clearly finds she can't stay there much longer. She tries to let it. She gets responses that she understands from the tenant or tenants. She decides presently that it's, I think in 2010, that it's unlettable, it's, un, it's unlivable. And she gets in touch with the SPR, a guy called John Randall, who's written about this very usefully in his recent book on poltergeists. And you know the degree of strangeness in that building corresponds with the sense that this is not a haunted house where you can come to terms with the ghost and just kind of get used to it. You know, people do. In 
in a surprising number of cases. But this is this is a haunted house where people go in for the first time. They feel like the air is so thick they can barely walk through it. They get violent bursts and spurts of rage towards friends and colleagues out of absolutely nowhere. They're violently reduced to tears or black depression, you know, just walking into the house. So yeah, you know, it comes down again to an individual. She's done the right thing here with a property that in Essex nowadays, I imagine could be very valuable, especially if you would sell it as not a foully haunted dwelling, but a beautiful ancient heritage site with original features, you know, his original graffiti from the witches and so on. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's questions like that where, you know, it really should be a legal matter. And it's a very, very difficult matter. I can see that. But, you know, if somebody can't live there, this is far worse than a house that's got a bit of damp, that's got a few leaks in the roof, um, that's got slightly bendy staircases what have you this is this is going to make your days and your nights a, an utter nightmare torment yeah absolutely i don't know if you have you come across this case before and this particular ruling called the ghostbuster ruling have you ever heard of this i don't think so no okay i promise anybody listening i am not pulling a fast one either this is genuine you can look this up it happened in 1991 mm. it was in new york and a and it's precisely what you were just talking about and we've been discussing. You know, what do you do if your home is haunted? You're trying to sell it. Do you tell them? Do you not tell them? You want to get rid of your house. You don't want to live there, but yeah. they're going to have to take it over. You know, that kind of, oh, what happens in this situation? Yeah. Well, you have this house up for sale and someone came to view it. They loved it. You know, according to the, the estate broker who was taking them around, she informed them that the house was haunted based on things that she'd been told by the current owner. And at the time of telling this person as they're going around, he made a joke of it saying, you know, oh, we'll have to get Ghostbusters in or something mm. to that effect, you know, took it completely lightly. Yeah. Signed the contract, so this is now a legal document. A week later, he wanted to meet up with the owners to discuss the haunting in more detail. Yeah. And they obviously told him all the things that they'd been experiencing, which were quite profound by all accounts. Yeah. And his response was he didn't want to own that property anymore. He didn't want to be going into buying in this buying this property. Now, whether that's a case of he just changed his mind or got spooked by what he was being told, but he had signed a legal document. Mm. He paid a down payment. It's legally binding. And he wanted out of it. And so he at that point, what he basically did was to not go through with the final stage of completing that purchase and he lost his down payment which was a sizable amount of money mm. to which he tried to sue to get that money back saying he hadn't been told about the haunting in enough detail or hadn't been told about it at all yeah and it went before the court and it was it played out you had all the evidence all the testimony all the people dragged in to say yeah. No, we told them all the rest of it. And the judge ruled, and it is called the Ghostbuster ruling. It is, it, you do, it's not res the responsibility of the owner. You, there is nothing legally binding, nothing legally forcing you to disclose things to do with the nature of ghosts haunting to do with your house. And therefore, this man had to deal with the fact that he'd lost his money by, by refusing to go through with the sale. And this case, you know, during the kind of the height of it playing out, apparently caused such controversy 
because people were really worried about what this meant for them. You had people who were buying houses, calling up, you know, local courthouses or their local estate brokers to to kind of see what that would mean for them if they're trying to buy a house. And the flip side of that, they were being inundated with people selling their houses, going, oh my God, do I have to tell people that there's this, this and this happening in my house or can I keep it quiet? Yeah. And it sparked this real thing of people were obviously having this kind of a situation happen what do they do? Where, where were they in terms of the law at that point with this kind of playing out? Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. It's mean, a great one. It's, you know, it's going to seem uh, crazy to uh, a lot of people, perhaps. But the the best odds there is when you go to view a property, you take a medium with you. You pay them good money and you, you are better off, you know, spending that money on a medium than on a, a very heavyweight survey in a lot of cases. Uh, because a, a brand new house that you know barely needs surveying can be built on the site of a very very haunted uh, area or disaster or whatever it might be. You know, Gravesend is is one case. Keith's house is a notorious case. And um, the Ghostbusters thing reminds me of something rather different, which I think we ought to talk about because it's an absolutely huge legal case. But I did also want to share the on this kind of note more directly comparing. Um, I don't know if you know there is a lovely uh, example from. Lancashire, uh, Chingle Hall, which uh, this title is thrown around rather carelessly, you know, the most haunted house in England. It's been described as a pretty ancient property. Um, and uh, Professor Trevor Kirkham, a Canadian eye specialist, um, sued the vendors of Ching- Chingle Hall uh, for £71,000 because it was not haunted, as had been claimed. Um, so yeah, it can cut. It can cut either way. I think that Ghostbusters ruling gives you that sense that everybody really has something to gain from a much more open conversation about stuff that is affecting thousands of people in a given city, but which they don't talk about in this age of proud transparency, proud uh, breaking of taboos. They they do not talk about this kind of thing. But yeah, the Ghostbusters thing uh, comes into focus for me in a case which was was an epic trauma for uh, a young woman carol compton uh, left a fairly sheltered experience um, i think she was barely out of her teens in scotland when she fell in love with an italian who was visiting scotland and she was so smitten with him decides to become engaged wants to get married and off she goes with him to italy he's busy a lot of the time uh, serving in the the army and she gets herself uh, employment as a nanny so as to support herself uh, prior to marriage and perhaps after and yeah she's apparently a very good uh, nanny in most respects the the families like her the the children like her and she for some reason we don't understand i mean she's she's perhaps a little bit highly strung she's roughly the kind of right age perhaps uh it is more likely that poltergeist agents are female uh, historically it seems to have been the case for whatever reason fires break out around her there's a little bit of minor poltergeist stuff in the the account where you know a picture will fall off the wall as she passes uh uh, a vase, an ornament, or shoot off a stand as she's walking down the corridor. So there's a little bit of nerviness from her employers when they witness this. But 
yeah, the, the really big stuff is when you get serious fires um, and they occur in the bedroom of the child who is in her care. Now, this happens in three different locations with two different families and with a baby seemingly threatened by deadly fires. I mean, fortunately, nobody has actually hurt baby or anybody in the family, but the fires are, you know, pretty heavyweight stuff. I mean, they destroy uh, big parts of, of properties. You can see that, you know, she's going to be put in the spotlight and because of the Italian legal system, she spends a tremendous amount of time simply in prison. You know, she goes over there with what seems to be the love of her life, all of her future before her, young, experiencing Italy for the first time, and she finds herself in prison. She finds initially that her cellmates are actually quite frightened of her as well. There's all sorts of stuff about witchcraft flying around, not only in Italy, but back in Scotland. Her mother loses her job uh, up in Scotland because of local kind of gossip flying around about witchcraft and the paranormal. And yeah, this runs and runs from spring 82 to the trial in December 1983. Now, this was absolutely extraordinary affair because Compton refused to believe that the fires could have been classic poltergeist fires. She had lots and lots of weight on her side. She had Guy Playfair and I'm trying to think who else. It might have been one of the people from the Max Planck Institute uh, who dealt with the, the Rosenheim poltergeist. But it was certainly some heavyweight stuff and Playfair was very willing to speak up for her as an expert witness who'd you know, seen plenty by this time with Enfield kicking off in the, the late 70s. And she also had, fairly independent of that, two fire experts who had called in uh, to the sites of the fire simply to analyze them as they would have done with any other case of fire, whether it's believed to be accident, electrical, malicious arson, whatever. And they both said, more or less, in 20 years, in 40 years of studying fires, I have never seen a fire that behaved like this. And I think one of the things one of them said was that the fire burned through a sofa downwards, not upwards. I mean, try and fake this if someone is paying you to do so. Um, I mean, she, she was lucky to escape not going to prison. Um, she was lucky to escape not being convicted of manslaughter. Uh, or attempted manslaughter and in the end you know she was she was sent home just after December 1983 uh, because she'd spent so much time in prison that they discounted this off any any kind of sentence but this was stuff that wrecked her life for quite a long time and could have wrecked it for far longer and yeah, there was so little knowledge about these things. I mean, you and I have seen crazy, crazy accounts, you know, of fires where in a farm in America in the 1940s, hundreds of fires break out in a week. I mean, hundreds, you know, and they start like this. A, a brown spot forms on a wall, gets darker and darker, it gets hotter and hotter, bursts into flames. You know, fires don't behave like that in, in normal cases, electrical or malicious or deliberate or whatever it might be. And I'll always remember the fire chief from Illinois there saying the whole thing is so wacky and crazy, I'm almost embarrassed to talk about it. You know, and there you are. If people could talk about these things, Compton, might have known that, yeah, these people are on your side and what they're saying makes sense. And what they're saying is is far from the only case. Uh, they may not have seen this before, but, but this has happened over and over again. I can't agree with you more. I think it's 
I think it's really telling the more you look into these things, the sheer volume of examples coming through the court system that really do highlight the need to keep that discussion open as to the types of experiences that are pe- you know that people are having um, because you see it coming through in so many different ways and it's really revealing and the response to it is really quite vast and spread and polarizing and different depending on who's in charge which country etc but it's happening all over. I mean, I found cases literally all over the world. Yeah. Right up to now. Like, yeah. literally right up to now. Yeah, yeah. And as that implies, really, if it's so widespread, if it's so common, you know, the one thing that every country has got, vary a lot, and they can be better or worse, but every country has got a legal system. It has got judges, uh, juries, solicitors, barristers and police and i got a lovely one which i hadn't seen until i started rummaging about for for this show just a few days ago 1910 uh, a judge has moved into a lovely big remote house uh, with his wife who i think was quite a bit younger than him so you know your judge is, is probably fairly senior as they are but the the wife if there's a possible kind of agent for the activity uh is is a lot younger anyway this house uh near Coimbra in uh, Portugal, looks a lovely desirable residence, very peaceful and all the rest of it. And yeah, they're forced out of the property in no time from a severe haunting with the result that, you know, probably because this is a person of some status, uh, particularly uh, he's, he's a judge, the police get quite heavily involved and three men are set to watch for a night uh, in the bedroom which has been particularly haunted so again you can see the possibility of the wife acting as a an unwitting agent and along the nearby corridor um, and as soon as the light has gone out the man in the corridor is wildly shouting and the others rush to his assistance find him hammering at the walls and i'm quoting here from the newspaper report quite insane um so yeah i mean people who out of professional pride you know are are trained to keep their cool under stress and um this one in 1910 i mean what happened to this character do you recover i don't know but bearing in mind that you have these victorian cases of of people perfectly happy and sane and then terrified into lunacy apparently uh in in uh, in more than one case a strange little detail here which is is something that very occasionally comes up but i'm quoting here an extraordinary feature of the manifestations if the newspapers may be relied upon is that the servants who have slept in another wing of the house had never heard the slightest noise or witnessed anything unusual um, until the night when they were roused by the struggle in the bedroom. So it's a tricky one. There's not enough data to go on, I think. But certainly cases where um, veteran investigators like Scott Rogo found that you could hear a noise on one side of an open doorway, but not on the other, you know? Mm. I mean, mm. that that close, that locally. So I don't know if it had that um, going for it as well. But uh, yeah, Um I just think it's such an, a kind of a, an area under talked about and it's such a shame that there just there isn't a database where you can really pull these types of experiences that have come through the judicial system because it, it, it really is so very fascinating yeah, really, and, yeah. and, and it kind of almost shows an evolution in some degrees in the sense that 
you know, cases that are more contemporary very much seem to be focused around an element of a contract, either will or a housing dispute, as I kind of mentioned some of those examples I've shared. Compare that to earlier and you've got far more far more cases involving you know some kind of aspect to do with a murder or poltergeist haunting effectively when you look at the type of things being being shown but there is a real kind of movement then towards really people are using this to report things that they're experiencing based on a document of law be it a contract for a will or some kind of contract around a house which I don't know. I, that that in itself is quite an interesting movement, a sea change, and, and maybe it's just a reflection of society and how our attitudes have shifted and where we kind of have these experiences or where we feel we can talk about it or where we feel maybe we. I don't. I don't know. It's a. It's a. It's an interesting movement. It's. It's something that's a bit of a conundrum. Yeah, it's. Uh, it's. I, Are I, you I, taking more seriously if you're bringing it up with regards to your house? as opposed to if you mention, oh, this terrible tragedy has affected my family and, you know, the person came to visit me in the moment of their death. You know, is it to do with not being believed again, this kind of notion that you can't really say some things anymore without being fear of persecuted as a, as a you know, someone who's not going to be taken credibly? Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I thoroughly agree with you about the database. You know, I think this would... When you think that law in its own right is all about precedence and... Mm. Uh, you know, previous cases and previous experiences, and yet it would also be a hugely valuable thing for paranormal investigators, for people who are suffering this kind of problem, to feel that they're part of a, a community and they're not sort of some batty lunatic fringe. But yes, certainly the thing about the document was focused very powerfully in uh, 1925 uh, in the Chaffin family in America, whereby the will of the defeat deceased um, James L. Chaffin, um, which was originally drawn up in 1905 when he was 57, was contested uh, by different members of his family. Um, I won't go into all the details about who was receiving what, but you know, it was quite surprising that a lot of people had been left out of the first will. And presently, one of these people who's been left out sees the father, who's by this time dead, uh, and he's instructed by James to uh, look in his old Bible and, yeah, allegedly finds a new will. and. The, the the whole thing goes to court um, and has been running on and on uh, down into the hands of Mary Roach, who I think has got it wrong, I have to say respectfully, um, has had a handwriting expert in uh, and seems to find that the kind of forensic um, argument against the ghost of uh, Chaffin having turned up with this will. But um, yeah, you know, it's it's a, a pretty heavyweight one in court with um, a family divided uh, around the visit of, of a ghost. I came across a, a, a really interesting one where I think it was around the same time, around 1905, so similar kind of time frame that you were just reporting about. Um, and it's McClary versus Stool, S-T-U-L-L. And basically, the, the widow was was asking to invalidate the will based on the fact that she had received information from her deceased husband who wanted to make changes yeah. by a communication on a Ouija board. Yeah. 
and it was granted. Right. So it, was, it was allowed to happen. Okay. It was allowed to be changed. Okay. Uh, because again, she had evidence that that was true. The only thing she had to prove was that it happened. She'd experienced that. The other side was to try and disprove that it had happened to her at all, and they couldn't. So it, it the, the will was amended to, to suit those changes and those reflections. And so, yeah, it is fascinating to see this movement towards it being much more contractual, something tied to something of significance, property, will, um, probate, anything of those, you know, that kind of nature, where maybe it, it seems more credible to kind of use the court for that. Do people, st you know, can people go through some of the other things that people were doing, you know, using the court for and kind of sharing their beliefs and ghosts and apparitions in the way that they had been 200 years before that? I, d I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, the point that's really reverberated throughout so much of this for me, and this is beyond just the actual courtroom scenarios, is that so much of the evidence I've got is simply things that people have told me. You know, mm -hmm. people who are complete strangers a lot of the time. In good weather, you can walk around the park, you can ask people about ghosts, you can get two, three, four credible ghost stories, which sometimes they'll follow up for you on, on email uh, in a day. I mean, I, you know, I was getting my bike from the library and there was a young woman having a smoke. I think, you know, I'll, I'll ask her if she's got an experience. I mean, immediately her eyes lit up. Like she'd been waiting to talk about this, you know, for a long time. She lived in a haunted school. You know, the gym equipment, heavy weights would be thrown around the gym in this boarding school. She saw it. Her friends saw it. And to this day that she's speaking to me, very keen to talk about this, her boyfriend won't believe that it ever happened. I know you think you saw what you say you saw and so on and i think that's a very big thing about the gendering of a lot of this and perhaps partly women being just more open about things generally uh whether or not they're more psychic but yeah the fact that you know in a court of law when somebody simply says something they are taken seriously um an awful lot of people if i present them these stories of which got a colossal number will say oh this is purely anecdotal uh, as though the word anecdotal is an automatic kind of downgrade insult, uh, flimsiness and so on. But it's anything but in a court of law and amongst many paradoxes. What do you do in most courts of law in the Western world throughout history? You swear on a Bible. You know, you swear on that thing whose core belief is the survival of the soul into an afterlife. Problem admitting that it's going to come back. A surprising amount of times from that afterlife but people who would swear on the bible that it has you know in their house their life their garden in more than one different property and yeah um there's the court of law there's the will there's the to many people rather excessive respect for property in western legal culture and yet there's also ones where people try to bypass the police a case which is a, a lovely one for all sorts of reasons is dr elizabeth mayer in california a straightforward materialist very straight conventional academic psychologist at the university uh living near Oakland, has a young daughter who becomes infatuated with a harp that she plays. And it's a particular kind of beautiful instrument, this one that she's got, which she plays a, a, a school concert just before Christmas one year. And while people are uh, 
milling about sort of taking congratulations after the performance the harp is stolen from the backstage area daughter's absolutely distraught she won't accept a substitute she won't accept anything else uh, which Maya can probably afford to buy her and so Maya goes to the police saying it's probably gone out of the area long ago I'm very sorry you know it's awful but you know our experience is that you're not going to get this recovered um, so she really you know as a young girl and in her early teens or younger distraught does everything she can think of and then finally at wit's end a colleague i think at the university says well look you'd be surprised but there are these dowsers these people call themselves dowsers uh and they can locate objects um of all sorts from a distance so she gets in touch with a guy called harold mccoy uh who lives in i think arkansas around 2000 miles away and simply over the phone very quickly uh within minutes of talking to him mccoy says yeah it's still in the area uh and then he gets a bit more precise uh with a map and he narrows down i think the street possibly the house she simply goes with some money uh to a parking lot after having put um a, a poster or two around pays the money gets the heart back and this is one thing in its own right but it changes maya's life in terms of the paranormal and she has her own paranormal experiences afterwards she writes a whole book on this called extraordinary knowing and yeah, I think this is probably one example that could easily have slipped under the radar if she was too embarrassed to talk about it. And she wasn't. She's a strong character. But it, it is said that the police do rely on these kind of people, whether they're called remote viewers. Uh, some of them, I think, are ex-policemen or women themselves. And, yeah, they are they are used to find missing persons, bodies, uh, the sites of uh, where a murder victim is is buried and so forth and allegedly you know have been used by the cia on the one side by uh the fsb the kgb on the other side to to spy you know from thousands of miles away on russian or american military installations uh so there's another legal problem in its own right but yeah um it's not the kind of thing the police want to talk about again it's kind of gray it's muddy it's a bit embarrassing uh, but if it works, if it works, use it, you know. But I, I think this is the part of that sea change, isn't it? Again, go back 100 years, 200 years, go back longer. And that would have been different. Um, it would have been accepted as, as somewhat normal, whereas now it's a bit more hush-hush and taboo. But yet it's still there. There's still evidence of it. And it's just gone underground. And that's that's the difference. And it, and it doesn't have the same kind of popular attention. I mean, if you... I mean, if we're being really very, um, you know, clear as to how how prolific this this was, you could you could look into an awful lot of cases and find evidence of this. There's evidence of paranormal activity and death apparitions and sites of ghosts and victims in the Jack the Ripper case. I mean, an awful lot of people gave testimony to seeing their loved one at the moment of their death or seeing yeah. that person on the street corner. That's yeah. in that's in the scant documentation that survived from the inquests and then you've got other cases that are really kind of well known things like the red barn murder in suffolk where you know the stepmother um was having dreams that her her stepdaughter had been murdered the year before and what she was being told these letters that she was receiving weren't actually from this poor girl 
And she sent her husband out to investigate this barn where she'd seen the body concealed. Yeah. Lo and behold, she finds the body. Yeah. And, you know, that person, you know, her, well, he wasn't, they weren't actually married. She, he was trying to avoid the marriage. That was the problem. Uh, was put on trial. It, he, it, it garnered huge amounts of attention Yeah, all the way through to when he was executed because it had every element of ghosts, uh, sightings of, you know, ghosts being reported in the trial, this sensational story in itself with this murder and how it was revealed. When he's executed, yeah, his corpse is so valuable. They're selling locks of his hair. Mm. There's, you know, there are portions of his scalp with the ear attached in shops for people to buy. Yeah. There were people buying parts of the rope for a guinea. Yeah. This yeah. was so noteworthy and interesting and so believed people were really invested in this. Yeah. This was a case of the truth has come out. This ghost has come through. This apparition has come through to tell her story and the bad guy's gone down. And, you know, and it's that. But if yeah. that happened today in a modern court of law, can you imagine if someone dared to try and suggest that a loved one was coming through to them and explain what happened to them? Well, the, the funny thing is, although, you know, you've got this very polarised situation with the reporters are clearly very, very sardonic um, in a lot of these cases. You know, they're tediously quoting old hoary bits of Shakespeare and Hamlet and Macbeth about ghosts. Um, they, you know, they... they, they they don't need to say it kind of in so many words, but they clearly think it's a load of absolute rubbish, but it'll make a good story for certain kind of readers. So they'll, they'll go with it. Then you've got judges who can be, uh, again, uh, skeptical, derisive, uh, incredulous, what have you. But you've also got um, the crisis apparition, you know, so one there where somebody is never exactly clear. They see the relative, uh, husband wife son mother etc at the moment of their death in the condition uh in which they've been killed perhaps if it's say violence uh, or warfare and yeah there's there's a case uh in the victorian period um where a soldier in the indian mutiny uh obviously a long way from london is killed at i think the siege of lucknow and his wife and also friends in London see him looking terrible with blood coming down his chest uh, in, in their houses in London. And the poor widow presently has the um, official certificates of his you know, heroic death of the siege, the date of the death, the exact, the exact time pretty much from witnesses. Uh, and she says, no, this is not right. You know, she kind of subtracts the time difference and everything between India and Britain. And she's still convinced that uh, he died at this time because she saw him at this time, allowing for the time difference. And the other witnesses say the same. So the war office or the, the military, whatever, um, corrects their records after a bit of investigation and said yeah we've talked to some other people and you're right you know so i don't know how much this you'd call this legal but it's pretty official stuff because you know the army is about as ocd as, as any lawyer can ever be and um the the question with the educated came to light in 1881 when there was a ghost in a possible ghost um 
in Shropshire, Copperhole Ghost, and an awful lot of kind of digging and rummaging in the hole to find the body of a murdered person was done. And things were a bit inconclusive. But the fact was the ghost story got a lot of press, ran and ran. And because it did, a lot of other people suddenly started putting forward their ghost stories. And a lot of these reports come from the Daily Telegraph. So you, you've got a lot of people of status, often male, often no-nonsense characters. You know, they sound like kind of ex-military types or legal types for that matter. And in terms of a crisis apparition, I mean, one of the best I've ever seen is one of these no-nonsense Victorian gents writing into the Telegraph with this sense of a kind of critical mass, incidentally, you know, that we, the educated, can now talk about this because the first two people have done it, so we'll follow suit. And they they come and come, these letters. Um, and, yeah, this chap is simply having a nice holiday in Brighton. Um, and he goes out for a meal with friends. It's a nice moonlit night, warm and pleasant. So he walks back along the seafront to his hotel some distance. And suddenly, as he's walking along the other side of the railings, he sees um, a carriage pulling up. And he, hang on, that's my aunt. Uh, my, I think it's his aunt, his grandmother, it was one or the other. Um, he, he sees this, this, this carriage he knows very well. He knows the particular servant um, who's driving. I think there's somebody also riding on the outside. Um, and he, he he sees his 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 arm. I think, what the heck is a you know very elderly lady in her eighties doing in Brighton at this time of night? It's about twelve or one in the morning when she actually lives in Cheltenham. Um, and sure enough, you know, in a matter of hours, he gets the telegram that she's died. And although this kind of looks like an outtake from a, an M.R. James story, really, you know, the whole carriage, the horses, the servants, if you think about it, the, the fact that's well known across ghost cases over and over again is that the ghost, the poltergeist, exhibits its human personality, sometimes malicious, sometimes violent, you might even call it evil, but a lot of the time just quite ordinary and trivial, you know, a case in Ireland where the the guy who was causing trouble as a poltergeist just wanted to have his debts paid because he died suddenly and he felt bad about it. Um, so, yeah, this old lady appears in death with all the status that she expected in life. And over and over again, you get these cases, you know, people are actually hundreds or thousands of miles away turning up at somebody's door for a few moments their carriage is heard again uh bringing them there and hang on i thought this chap was in india and then he disappears and you get the notice of his death uh, but they, they come back to say goodbye you know a, a startling amount and um yeah if, if they get kind of enough backing and enough company uh the most kind of no-nonsense educated sort of hoary old victorian gents will will come out about this And, and again, I, I, I think it's one of my takeaways, you know, having looked into this, is this sense of when was it okay? When has it been okay to talk about things? And why has that changed? You know, we there does seem to have been this movement from kind of this belief in magic or things of the supernatural and things of this kind of nature, almost moving towards a bit more, let's, let's only think of it as contractual you know, a bit more precise and a bit more kind of closeted in. I, I think the other takeaway that I've got is just that if we think about the paranormal fields and researchers, investigators, everybody along that spectrum, you know, there is this thing, isn't there, where 
I don't believe you, show me the evidence. Show them the evidence. Well, I don't believe that evidence because, you know, I wasn't there and that could be faked and that could be a hoax, right? You hear it all the time. If you don't have anything, yeah. it's anecdotal, but if you give something, it's, it's, it's kind of rubbished away. Mm. And yet, actually, if you look at the court system, if you look at law, if you look at what, from what I can see is there in the wording and, and actually how it should play out, the opposite is true. It's the other way around. Mm. And that I find fascinating that there is that reversal within, within kind of this umbrella that actually it's not about trying to prove the existence of ghosts. That's taken as fact. The opposite, you've got to prove that it doesn't exist really in a court of law yeah if you if you go by the wording and that kind of shift is so fascinating to me to know that it's there but whether it actually happens is something different but yeah it's just such an interesting interesting topic fascinating yeah yeah it's been it's been great to go back to this and um i'd love well, lawyers and barristers and and people with experiences if they've got stories if they know more well, about I, this, I think i think they will have i mean Thanks. three three cracking ghost stories i got from durham or from a student of mine who is who is now a barrister and uh they were they were important ones you know, he got three in his own family uh alone and i think you know law the church the professions um this tiny elite that's run britain really particularly england for such a long time it, it, it it's been a mess you know from the time of god knows some people would say it all went rotten with um the norman conquest uh but you know certainly it was a very corrupt elite in lots of ways in the time of james the first or charles the first i mean look where that ended um but it got particularly kind of strange, I think, to take up your point about, you know, people's belief in magic or what would be construed as magic. In about the mid um, 18th century, I came to realize when studying the decline of corpse medicine or, or medicinal cannibalism, people like Dr. Johnson and other educated characters uh, started to turn violently against us. And it was really because it didn't fit the enlightenment you know it didn't fit this clean rational uh materialistic drive into some brave new future and so there was a kind of false desire to shut out all sorts of phenomena which some of them of course were genuinely superstitious i mean they were genuinely malign and harmful people were still being murdered persecuted attacked as witches men and women right into the late 19th century in britain uh, but having kind of decided on this brave new grand clean rational protestant philosophy the educated failed to give anything else to about the other 90 percent of the population who carried on using whatever was to hand um and relying on magic in all sorts of situations, whether it's for stolen goods, lost goods, illnesses, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, when you talk about the relics from that case, uh, people buying bits of the rope, um, people were touching corpses in huge numbers at hangings, you know, as long as public hangings lasted all across Britain to cure skin complaints and unsightly disfigurements and so on. So, yeah, I think there's a kind of lingering guilt you see sometimes in uh, these furiously indignant accounts about peasant, you know, mass working class superstition, because these people perhaps actually dimly recollect that they were responsible for a lot of 
tyrannizing of supposed witches and then when they changed their minds um, they were so cut off from ordinary people that they had no idea how they lived uh, how difficult their lives were and yeah how how natural the paranormal was or superstition was whether it was one or the other or a kind of mixture of both um, yeah it's just this disconnect isn't it and that's and I think we still see it I think it's that bit in between of the stuff that we don't talk about enough <laughs> it's just yeah ab absolutely um, I mean coming closer to our own times um, not long before Ghostbuster which I, I brought in a while back because you know shortly after Carol Compton's recovering from all this trauma back home in Britain um, the paranormal is one big whopping great joke on cinema streams all across Britain and America Ghostbusters coming out in 1984 I remember the damn song you never got the damn thing off the radio for weeks and weeks um, but yeah a little bit before that although probably actually running quite close to the the film must have been in production by the time that this ended um in thornton road in birmingham in 1981 three houses i think in a terrace uh so kind of singled out pretty tightly and exactly were pelted with stones night after night after night um, residents wore tin hats they tacked up chicken wire across the windows uh, and sure enough presently the police are involved frozen police officers uh, during the winter perch in trees uh, and presently chief inspector len turley admits to the press we have spent more than 1,000 man-hours on this case. If we even knew the reason for it, we would be one step nearer. And Turley never got any nearer. This case went on for three years. I mean, you know, three nights having stones hurled at your house could cause some people to crack. But three years, one of the victims thought it hastened the death of his elderly mother. Uh, and yeah, they can roughly see where these stones are coming from. They think you know what sort of technology would you need to hurl things from that distance because obviously they get as far as they can in that direction to try and find anybody and cannot uh, and it looks like so many other cases you know stone throwings uh going on i mean overlapping in 18 1983 um there was one going on in the tucson desert and it's a completely lonely detached house burke bigler family out there um you've got police vigilantes floodlights um and the only kind of cover was scrub bushes um but at such a distance that you'd have to stand up to get the stones to hit the house you know so you're completely visible in the glare of the spotlights and again uh two months of bombardment's a bit shorter but must have felt like a lot of the time no results no culprits no rational as it were solution it's just honestly i just think it is such as i said i just think it's a topic so lacking an area of discussion so underutilized in terms of researching looking at the, these different examples and cases all over the place and then talking about what it's showing i just think again i just think it highlights the need to really look at what we've got and 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 be able to talk about these things a bit more openly and for people to feel like they can actually share their experiences a bit more openly yeah. if they're having them. Yeah. Where do they go? What, what do you do? Who do you speak to without fear of, of ridicule or, or someone looking at you strangely? Yeah, I think that's why, you know, Caroline Mitchell deserves a medal really for publishing her account. She had to self-publish it uh, because she just couldn't get a publisher, which speaks volumes in its own right, really. It's an extremely valuable account, first-person account, very courageous. 
and yeah you you're at the mercy of the kind of police i think that get called out i think in cases like that thornton road thing you know it goes on so long it's so undeniable it's so sustained that the police they're, they're going to covertly admit among themselves that something's happening something we mm -hmm. cannot explain we've had a very long time to solve it to explain it in any kind of mundane way and we simply cannot and they'll you know this probably change their lives and yeah some uh, are just going to be kind of embarrassed and perhaps contemptuous case in near glasgow a little while ago where the police officers are absolutely shocked to hell reporting from the poltergeist house the guys at the station are laughing their pants off at them so right we'll come down and see it so the guys at the station come down and see it and and change their tune but there was a long-running one um just to end on in in scotland again but or not poltergeist it was known as 1974 to 75 and um yeah you've got young young kids uh boy of 14, boy of 11, uh, parents and grandmother, a fairly crowded house, which is not always a good thing. And this was aggravated enough to call in the police. And officer is not named here, but he's quoted in the Glasgow Herald, uh, says pithily, there is something strange going on in that house, something we cannot logically explain. You get it to materialise and I will lock it up. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> that is brilliant. <laughs> I would love to see that. That would make some good headlines. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Honestly, this is just such a fascinating discussion. It's been a real joy to talk about this with you. And, and I think we could keep Likewise. going because there is, there, there is just so, so many examples from funny examples, serious, sad, um, really quite intriguing things coming through and being reported. I mean, it literally covers the spectrum. Of, it, of experiences and responses from judges, from defence lawyers, from prosecution, you know, the prosecutors in the case or the police and their response, the public reaction. I mean, it, it really does cover that gambit of, of emotions and responses on every level. And it's so intriguing to kind of look at that and examine that and see some of that play out the way that it does. So if anyone has um anyone listening if you come across a really interesting case or a, or an account or an article i'd love you to send it over i'd love to see it it's it's something that i've really enjoyed having a look at in a bit more detail to be honest so if you come across anything feel free to send it my way yes uh, seconded be, be very very gratefully received i think there's a lot probably out there that's not not been heard yep and, and like i said all over the world i came across one in Australia as, as kind of recent as 2013, where there was a, a marriage dispute over their house and whether it was haunted or not. And yeah, there's all kinds of really interesting cases there if you go looking. Sometimes they're hidden away because like we said, they're not really always publicly out there in the way that other stuff gets reported, but it is there if you go looking and you kind of take that time. So maybe that's what, <laughs> maybe that's what I'll be doing for the next few weeks because it, it, like I said, it's just a bit of a treasure trove. Yeah, I think you know the precedents need to be added to. Um, it's definitely. Uh, it's, it's it's waiting definitely. But yeah, thank thanks for a terrific, um, great great range of uh, of cases and history. And um, obviously, all of your details will be on the podcast description notes, etc. Because you know you've got such a range of books that cover some of these these things that we've been talking about in to some degree or other and yeah just lots of interesting things that you say so people can come and find you and have a look at some of the other things that you've written and and talked about because they're equally interesting and relevant to what we've been saying today i think 
yeah no that would be great yeah century of ghost stories is the one to go to for the moment and um a lot of detail i think helps you know make the craziness seem seem a bit more credible in there <laughs> absolutely and i will say goodbye to everybody listening bye everybody good night